Here's the rundown for this edition of the Cigar Dave Show. Number one, for the first time in America's 247-year history, Marxist Democrats mugshot a former American president. Beyond outrageous and absolutely revolting. Number two, the longest-tenured play-by-play broadcaster in NHL history, who I grew up listening to as a kid and an adult, Rick Jenrett of the Buffalo Sabres, passes away. My tribute. And number three, football is back. Football guru Chris Landry of LandryFootball.com joins us for our 2023 college football preview. The Cigar Dave Show is presented by Davidoff of Geneva and their Camacho portfolio of cigars, including the Camacho Triple Maduro with a four-country blend of all Maduro tobaccos. Camacho Triple Maduro delivers an explosion of bold, earthy flavors, including cedar, pepper, and subtle sweetness. The Camacho Triple Maduro, available at DavidoffGeneva.com. And by Gurkha, the world's finest cigars, including the new Gurkha Pure Evil, blended for cigar connoisseurs able to handle a full-flavored cigar loaded with strength, power, and richness. Don't let the name fool you. Gurkha Pure Evil is pure cigar pleasure. Visit GurkhaCigars.com. This is the Cigar Dave Show with the General. Well, football is around the corner. My favorite time of the year. Chris Landry of LandryFootball.com will join us a bit later on in this edition of the Cigar Dave Show. We are jammed, as always. I extend to you on the latter days of summer 2023 a long-ass greeting and salutation, a long-ass snappy salute, Semper Delictatio. Always pleasure. Long live the Alpha. Make masculinity great again. Screw the enemies of pleasure. Hashtag Save America. Hashtag Trump 2024. Well, for the first time in America's history, 247 years, an American president was mugshotted. It took place Thursday night all over the news. President Trump flew down from New Jersey to Atlanta to the Fulton County jail complex to be booked, fingerprinted, and have his mugshot taken. By the way, what a badass mugshot. Like a true mafia boss. You could just tell looking at the mugshot, he's pissed. He means business. And you can be sure that that uh, mugshot will raise millions and millions of campaign dollars. But unnecessary. What we are seeing today is absolutely revolting. It is vile. It is Marxist. The evils of Marxist and dictatorship and third world banana republics all combined. President Trump's original sin, original breaking of the law, was winning the 2016 election, and beating a felon hag, fat-ass Hillary Clinton. At that point, the Democrats, now known as the Marxist Democrats, because that's what they are, immediately set out to destroy the presidency with all the bullshit and all the fabricated Russia, Russia, Russia hoax, all the nonsense, and yet they're all walking scot-free. While President Trump, who had absolute every right to question the outcome of a rigged 2020 election. It's First Amendment. He has absolutely right. The Democrats, all the Democrats that are, that are fetching and bitching and moaning about President Trump 
trying to destroy democracy because he questioned the outcome of the election, go back and take a look at all the video of the Democrats at every election where a Republican won, complaining, saying the election was rigged. Look at Stacey Abrams. Refused for four years to accept the election. Said, nope, he didn't win. The, the Governor Kemp is not the legitimately elected governor. Well, if that were the case, that by challenging an election, disputing an election, you could be put in jail, Stacey Abrams would have been given the death penalty and hung. Hillary Clinton, same nonsense. President Trump not legitimately elected. But she actually went to the point of actually creating a faux Russia dossier and a supposed link with Russia, which everybody knew was fabricated and nonsense, but the media went with it, the Marxist liberal media and all the other Marxist Dems, and essentially launched a soft coup against President Trump for his four years. What we are seeing today is the Marxist Democrats, and I no longer call them the Democrats, they are Marxist Democrats. They are trampled. When they they accuse Republicans and Trump of trying to subvert democracy, they're the ones that are doing it. They point the finger at Republicans and at Trump, but they're the ones executing the plan. Talk about projection. The Marxist Democrats absolutely want to eliminate any competition. They don't want any challenges. They don't want any other party. When you hear Marxist Democrats saying, where's the old Republican Party that we, that we trusted, that we knew? What they're saying is, we want the rollover uniparty that would do whatever we said and acquiesce to all our demands. And the MAGA America First movement will not acquiesce to the Marxist Democrats. It goes to really one basic, one basic premise. Marxist Democrats hate America. They hate the Constitution. They hate capitalism, except when it's for their own benefit. They hate the fact that Americans actually have a right to vote and express their opinion. And what are we seeing from them? They want to subvert free speech. We saw it with uh, big tech and how they, they uh, ganged up with big tech to stifle any dissent, whether it was about the Wuhan virus whether it's about the election, you disagreed, you're canceled, you're deplatformed. They want absolutely no dissent. They want only one party. And this is no different than what we see in Marxist dictatorships. Look at China, look at Mao, look at Nicaragua, Venezuela, Cuba, Soviet Union, even Russia today under Putin. Countries today that are, that are led by Marxist dictators that want zero political opposition. And when they do have political opposition for an election, what do they do? They jail their opponents. They lock them away. We see it in Nicaragua. Saw it in Cuba. See it in Venezuela. Anybody that's an opponent, they come up with a fabricated crime and they are put away. They are locked away. There is no difference between what they are doing and have done, and what the O'Biden regime. And when I say O'Biden, it is Obama-Biden. Biden is a figurehead. Obama is running the show. This is his third term. And you can be sure he wants a fourth and fifth term. It is outrageous what we are seeing. What did Obama say? We are going to fundamentally change America. That's right. Fundamentally change America from a democratic republic 
to a Marxist dictatorship, a one-party rule dictatorship. And that's exactly what we have seen. When the Democrats know that Joe Biden is a bumbling idiot, brainless, brain-dead Biden, can't put two sentences cohesively together, doesn't know where to walk off when he's done with something, falls asleep, no comment on a, on a terrible disaster that took place in Maui. This is the clown that's sitting in the Oval Office. Of course, the master puppeteer is Barack Obama. And it was Valerie, uh, uh, is Valerie Jarrett and Susan Rice, who's no longer technically in the administration, but you can be sure there's other Obama, former Obama officials in the Biden administration pulling all the strings. They despise America. They want to, no, it's no longer about governing, it's about dictating. It is no longer government for the people, by the people. It is government for the Marxists, by the Marxist administrative state. They want to go after your air conditioner. They want to go after your gas-powered vehicle. They want to go after your meat. They want to go after your food. They want to go after everything because they believe they have the right to divinely dictate to you. Climate change. We all hear this nonsense. Oh, it is, it is, it is a, a fundamental disaster if we don't do anything. It's an existential threat. The science doesn't prove it. And when you disagree in debate, what are they all day? They always revert to this one fallback position. 99% of, of scientists agree climate change is happening. The science is settled. They can never debate you with actual facts. Why? Because they don't have any facts. You need carbon in this world when we hear we need to go to net zero. Four-tenths of 1% of the world's atmosphere is carbon. Carbon is a natural occurring substance in the earth and around and in the atmosphere. Yet out of the four-tenths of 1%, humans only account for around 5% of carbon. The rest are, uh, comes from the oceans, the earth, animals, and if you go below three-tenths of 1% in the atmosphere, carbon, you get into problems. You get to two-tenths of 1%, and the entire world, the, the atmosphere, gets into major problems. Life as we know it disappears. So this nonsense that we're going to go to net zero is ridiculous. Climate change hasn't taken place. But yet, everybody's been indoctrinated school children indoctrinated, grade school kids, high school, college. And then we hear that kids are panicked and terrified because they think the earth is going to end. They won't be alive because there could be one-tenth of one degree rise in the temperature of the world. This is all the nonsense being spewed by the Marxist Democrats. The Marxist Democrats know that in a fair election, a non-rigged election, President Trump destroys O'Biden. Destroys them, not even close. You look at every poll today in the swing state. And you got to remember, President Trump only lost by a margin of 50,000 votes overall to change the Electoral College. That's it. And that's with all the rigging that took place by the Democrats in the 2020 election. 
The Marxist Democrats know. They all know that Trump today would destroy them. And I cannot tell you the number of people who six months ago, a year ago, said, I, I like Trump what he did, but just the tweeting and his attitude and uh, his, his being bombastic, I can't vote for him again. I'm going to support Ron DeSantis. Well, isn't it amazing the difference six months makes? Because all those people, all my friends that said, oh, I, I can't vote for Trump, they all said the same thing to me recently. I'm 100% in for Trump. I'm in for Trump because I realized Ron DeSantis, while he was a great governor, and I think he was a good governor. I don't believe he was a great governor. And this fantasy that he didn't lock down the state, he sure as hell did for two months. Locked everything down. Came from the top. And he was uh, praising Fauci. And when we go back and look at the Wuhan virus pandemic, everyone made mistakes. Everyone. Federal, local, state, the medical profession, everyone make, mis makes mistakes and made mistakes. And now they want to start lockdowns again, masking for a virus that they're saying, oh, we've got a massive, it's, it's spreading again. Nonsense. Nonsense. And we know there are therapeutics. Don't go near a vaccine. Anybody today that goes near a Wuhan virus booster or vaccine is an idiot. Take the chance to yourself. It is absolute poison. That's my opinion. I took uh, two of the Pfizer vaccines early on. Would never do it again. What we know today is that it is loaded with danger, loaded with poison, loaded with an untested technology. And there are loads of people today who have had health issues, heart issues, uh, uh, other vascular issues, uh, um, um, nerve-related uh, damages, and even dead, even death. No thank you. Not interested. But the Marxist Democrats know the only chance they have to beat Trump is to jail him. The same thing that we see in Venezuela, in Nicaragua, in Cuba, and other Marxist dictatorships. The only way that the Marxist Dems can beat President Trump is either by cheating, and much of that is going to go away because of new laws that were passed and the fact that now Republicans have woken up. Either cheating, which is probably going by the wayside, but there will be some, make no mistake, or to jail President Trump for bullshit crimes. Merrick Garland will go down in history, American history, as one of the most evil figures in this country's history. So will Biden, so will Obama, and so will Jack Smith. It is absolutely outrageous that a president who has every right to have documents pursuant to the Presidential Records Act, he could take whatever he wanted from the White House, pure and simple, but then all of a sudden to have his, uh, his, his, his home in Florida raided. But yet the Biden, you take a look at Biden, all the documents he had as senator and vice president, which, by the way, he was never allowed to have. Yet nothing, no raids, nothing. This country is on the verge of destruction. Many of our founding forefathers said, 
You have a Democratic Republic, a Republic if you can keep it. And many of them said the enemy from within will destroy this country, not the enemy that's external to the country. They are right. And the enemies in this country today are Marxist Democrats. Obama's an enemy of America. Biden's an enemy of America. Garland's an enemy of America. All the Marxist Dems that want to destroy the founding principles of the United States of America are all enemies of the state, period. And to see a president, a former president, being treated horribly, not only by all these bullshit charges, whether it's in New York, whether it's in D.C. or in Florida, and now in Georgia, fat-ass Fannie Willis, outrageous. And when you read the charging document, when you read the indictment, it's an absolute joke. President Trump tweeted, everybody watch Newsmax or OAN tomorrow. That's an indictable offense. That is absolutely permitted under the First Amendment. And when you listen to the entire audio recording of President Trump's call with the Secretary of State, Georgia Secretary of State Raffensperger and several other officials, he didn't say, go fabricate 11,000 votes, go cheat and make up 11,000 votes. He said, go find 11,000 votes. There's 11,000 vote difference. There's got to be votes that are that have not been properly counted. And oh, by the way, they've exactly found that. There are, I think, 30,000 votes in Georgia that have never been counted and to this day have never been counted. Isn't that a little bit suspicious? What do we always hear from the Marxist Democrats? Every vote must be counted. Every vote must count, except batches of votes where a Republican could get the majority of those votes. We are on the precipice. And I say, civil war could be around the corner, but it's going to be a different civil war than what we saw during Abraham Lincoln's tenure and uh, during the slavery period. We're in a much different uh, different era. High tech. I mean, I think a civil war was launched against Republicans when big tech colluded with, uh, with the Democrat government to stifle speech. That is absolutely part of a civil war. As an American that believes in capitalism, that believes in freedom of speech, that believes in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, what we are witnessing is outrageous, dangerous, threatening. I had somebody talk to me earlier this week who escaped communism and said that growing up, we always looked at the United States as this giant shining beacon, as a country that if we're lucky enough, We'll be able to get there knowing we'll be safe, be able to practice our religion, be able to speak freely without the threat of imprisonment or torture. That same person told me today, I almost feel like I'm back in Cuba where I grew up. I don't recognize this country, he said. And if you don't think that people that have escaped persecution from these Marxist dictatorships and banana republics, you don't think those that are Americans today that grew up in that environment, they don't see shades of the past? You damn well they, they do. 
seeing the president's mugshot, and we can kid around about it, and we can say, wait, put it on a T-shirt or a mug. They'll sell it. They'll raise big-time money. That'll be a rallying cry. It is despicable. And any Democrat that applauds that, that think that is great for this country, you better think again. Because you have just opened a can of absolute recklessness that you will never put back. And if you think that Republicans, when they get control again, they won't do the same to you, and I'm against any, listen, I'm against any, any party, Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal, using government and the agencies and the bureaucracy as a weapon or politicizing those agencies. I'm against it. If a, if a Republican took over, I'd say, no, we don't politicize. We don't weaponize the FBI or the DOJ. We don't do that. But the Marxist Democrats have now opened the door to it. And if you don't think the only way to stop Democrats from doing it again is to give them a dose of their own medicine times 100, you better believe that's what's going to happen. And it should happen. And I say that while I despise that, Today, in order to deal with these Marxist radical Democrats, when they kick you in the nuts, you kick them in the nuts, and then you take your boot and shove it up their ass. It's that simple. You play their game times 10. Otherwise, they will continue to do it. And if you don't think that Republicans, when they take full power, the executive and the legislative branch, won't do it against the Marxist Dems, think again. Because now Republicans have finally awoken, many, not all, the Mitt Romneys, the, uh, the, 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 some of the other, the, the uh, Mitch McConnells, they are clueless. They think you can reach across the aisle and be bipartisan and friendly. That's not how it works anymore. It is hand-to-hand combat. And the only way that we will end it is when the Republicans go in and give the Marxist Democrats a taste of their own medicine times 10. Only then will they put down their weapons and say, big mistake. They think they can get away with it now? Think again. What goes around comes around. Karma. And I will tell you that more people that I've spoken to are more emboldened to vote for President Trump. Not only because he did a great job, they they compare and contrast the disaster we're in with Biden, a ridiculous, uncontrolled border, sending billions to Ukraine. That would have never happened under President Trump. Being weak, uh, China basically wagging their fingers at us. The fact that we no longer have energy independence, let alone energy dominance. The economy, inflation through the roof. We have zero respect. I love these people that say, we are now respected globally again by all these other countries. We're not respected. They love the fact that Biden is weak so they can roll all over us. Any story to the contrary is pure fiction. Americans today are going to be emboldened to vote for President Trump when they see the torture, they know it's wrong, and independents are the key. Republicans are going to vote Republican. Democrats are going to vote for Democrats. By and large, you may have some switch over. But the change is in the independence. And President Trump is going to win independence big. There are many unregistered voters currently now that are going to register. They're going to break for President Trump big. And so are 
suburban women. We always hear, President Trump can't win suburban women. Oh, they don't like his attitude. They don't like his rhetoric. I can tell you, speaking to numerous suburban women independents, they said, there is no way I want my daughters to have to compete with boys or men in their sports, whether it's soccer, volleyball, basketball, field hockey, tennis, whatever the sport. They are absolutely against it, and they all say they don't want boys in the women's room, in the girls' room, and in the girls' locker rooms. And they said President Trump will stand against that, and he's got my support. And there is this story that is going around with the Marxist media and some of the the liberal pollsters saying, "Oh, President Trump can't can't win a national election. No, he, he's not. He, he he's not electable. That is pure poppycock. President Trump is absolutely electable. When you talk to the legitimate pollsters and the data they're getting, they're all saying that President Trump now is opening up a big lead, bigger than ever before, five six points nationally in the key swing states, opening up big. This fabrication from." the Ron disaster camp, the Ron disloyal, or Mike Putz Pence, or Nimrod, Nimrata Haley, that's a real first name, not Nikki, it's Nimrata, that President Trump is unelectable, and we can't elect a president that's been indicted, maybe even convicted. President Trump will win big. And what is amazing to me is these stupid Republicans think that If President Trump just goes away, the Marxist Democrats will stop. We'll stop going after Republicans. We'll just sing kumbaya and hold hands and everything will be great. Do you think the Marxist Democrats will stop cheating after Trump is no longer in politics? Do you think the Marxist Democrats will not try to silence Republicans when Trump is no longer in politics? After he leaves office as the 47th president of the United States? You think that the Marxist Democrats will stop using every lever of the administrative state against Republicans? Think again. It is such narrow, naive thinking by these Republicans that everything will be fine when President Trump is no longer in the political arena. That's how stupid they are. The Marxist Democrats are not going to stop. The only way you stop them is to beat them and then bury them at their own game. And that's exactly what will take place. But what an absolute embarrassment. Can you imagine if our founding forefathers were looking up and then look, or correction, up above looking down right now? They'd all be shaking their heads saying, this is not the republic. This is not the country that we founded, that we, 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 we put our lives on the line for. We did not put a country together where one party believes they should have ultimate rule. We did not put a country together and found a country to violate freedom of speech and the Constitution and Bill of Rights. They would be mortified, as every American should be mortified, even Democrats. But unfortunately, the Marxist Democrats are too stupid to see what they have done. Karma. What goes around comes around. It will come back to bite them. President Trump shall be the 47th president of the United States. It is incumbent upon all of us to make sure that we watch for any cheating, any voter fraud, that we vote early. Don't wait until the last day. Vote 
early and make sure you tell everyone you know, vote early. And of course, vote for Trump. Growing up as a kid in Buffalo, I listen, I was a huge sports fan as a kid. I love the Buffalo Sabres of the National Hockey League, and I love the Buffalo Braves of the NBA. The Buffalo Braves, I think, played for, I want to say five, ah, maybe longer than that. Maybe it was 10 years. Buffalo Sabres still around. They were founded in 1970. Now, when I was a kid, many of the games were not on television. Cable TV, when the, when the Sabres were founded in 1970, and I was a little kid, Games weren't on TV. They were on regular TV, but few and far between. Not today, like today where every game is broadcast. Back then, there really wasn't cable TV. It would be until maybe the late 70s when cable television started to become popular. And one of the selling points to get cable in the Buffalo area where I grew up was the fact that they carried all the Sabres home games. And that was big. And many people subscribe for that for one reason, to watch the Sabres home games because they were all sold out. So growing up as a kid, I would listen to the Sabres and the Buffalo Braves games on radio. And I remember for Hanukkah one year, I think it was maybe seven, my parents got me uh, uh, an RCA transistor radio, AM transistor radio. It was probably about maybe four inches wide by about five, six inches high. Had a a little antenna, had a wrist strap, and on the right side, there was the on-off with the volume, and on the left, there was a little circular dial, and inside a little window, you could see the numbers, you know, 55, 930, 1500, so you would go through, and that's how you would tune in and listen, and so as a kid, when the games were not on television, I would go to bed by 9 o'clock. And my parents would say, well, you can listen to the Sabres or the Braves game. And I'd have the radio on, and I, uh, usually I'd fall asleep, and then my father or mother would turn the radio off, and I'd wake up. The first thing I would say is, who won? And then my father would proceed to tell me what happened in the game. And then when games were on TV, and I still had to go to bed by that time at whatever it was, maybe 10 o'clock, but I could listen to it on the radio, and I'd have my transistor radio right next to the bed on the nightstand, listening to the games. And to this day, I cannot fall asleep unless I have the radio on or now I've got my I've got my smartphone and I'll listen to a podcast or I'll listen to a, a sports uh, broadcast, whatever the case may be. I can't fall asleep if it is just total silence. I have to have the radio on. Goes back to when I was a little kid. Well, the voice that I listened to the first year I remember was Ted Darling, the voice of the Sabres. Then he moved to television, and Rick Jenrette became the voice of the Buffalo Sabres on radio in 1971. And then in the, uh, I believe it was mid, maybe 92, mid-90s, he also became the, he became the television voice, and they started simulcasting the TV and radio broadcasting uh, broadcast because the Buffalo Sabres fans wanted to hear him. He was so unique. Rick Jenrette passed away last week at the age of 81. Broadcast until the end of the 2022 season. So just until a year ago, he was broadcasting, although primarily just doing home games and a very limited number of home games, or or road games, correction. Rick had a unique style. He had tremendous enthusiasm, came up with some great sayings. The longest tenured play-by-play broadcaster 
in National Hockey League history. 51 years. And I can tell you from meeting him numerous times in, at the uh, uh, Emily Arena press box here in Tampa and other broadcasters that I know telling me that they knew Rick Jenneret and that every arena he went to, every press box, the broadcasters, away broadcasters would always go in to speak with him, just had a great sense of humor. Players loved him. Just really an affable guy. And he said, all I really wanted to do was always just broadcast the Buffalo Sabres. Passed away at the age of 81. Last couple of years were tough. Had some organ failure, uh, according to his family. But I wanted to share with you some of the memories with just a little, some audio highlights. And some of the calls that he made were famous. One was for Pat LaFontaine. He ended up calling him la 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 LaFontaine. And I remember one of the holidays uh, when Pat LaFontaine scored a goal. He said, tis the season. Fa la 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 LaFontaine. And then Brad May scored a big goal in overtime. I think it was in the playoffs. And he ex- exclaimed, mayday, mayday, mayday. I mean, you would hear these highlights on ESPN all the time. And he had another saying that if a player shot the puck, went into the upper corners of one of the goals, he would say, top shelf where mama hides the cookies. Some great sayings. So let me play for you some of the Rick Jenner highlights that as a kid I listened to, as an adult, watching him uh, on the NHL sports package that's available, it was available, it still is, on satellite or cable TV. And at the end of this audio highlight, when he signed off, I'll just play about uh, 30 seconds of his sign-off. Take a listen. Swings back through center. Brings it in over the line. Shipman. And behind the net. Squeezed up by Mallet. Murray picks it off. Murray trying to get it to Daw. Does. Daw on the corner. Sails it back to Platt. Put it in front of the net. Deflected just wide by Murray. They chop at it on the board. Daw tries it free to Murray again. Looking for LaFontaine. In front of the Fontaine, he gets tripped up, gets it to May, and over the line, he's May going in on goal, he shoots, he scores! May Day, May Day, May Day, May Day, May Day, Brad May wins it in overtime! I don't want to sound this like a, like a eulogy, but... Uh, it's more of a celebration, really. Time passes for everyone. Eyesight fails, as does reaction timing. With me, it works like the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. <laughs> it's the first time I've ever quoted the Bible. Thanks for traveling around with me on this road for the last half century. All of you, thank you very kindly. It's been a hell of a ride. And I will tell you that there was not a dry eye in the broadcast booth. The, the, uh, uh, all the uh, 
some of the producers that were in the booth, the stage manager, cameraman, uh, not a dry eye after that, uh, that farewell. And I know that many of you, wherever you grow up, you listen to a play-by-play broadcaster and you become almost entwined with them. And as someone said, actually the, the general manager of the Buffalo Sabres, who grew up in Buffalo, became an NHL player, he had a very interesting comedy. He said he was the voice of the Sabres, but he was also the voice of our city. And that hit it right smack dab on the mark. And wherever you grow up, whatever city you grew up in, whether it's Boston or whether it was Philadelphia or Chicago or L.A., you listened, if you're a sports fan, you listened to your, the a play-by-play broadcaster on radio or TV, and you became familiar with them. And when... Let's say they were out or they were taking some time off. You'd hear someone else and it just didn't feel right because they're really, you develop, even though you may have never met them, you in a sense become really part of that entire, not a family, but just, just the entire picture where you are, you listen to them, their, their voice becomes ingrained in your, in your mind and it's just something that you feel comfortable with. And I can tell you that Rick Jenneret will never be replaced. They have somebody that has replaced him. That they started a transition, I think about seven, eight years ago. Not the same. And he's okay, but he's not Rick Jenneret. I'm sure many of you grew up. If it was L.A. Chick Hearn or it was Ernie Harwell in Detroit with the Tigers, someone that you grew up with and then they're replaced. Look, everybody retires. Things change. The, 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 the baton has passed, but it's just not the same. And so for me, growing up listening to Rick Jenrette on 80 nights a year because I would listen to almost every game. And when I watched the games and I had to go to bed, that radio was on listening to the Sabres broadcast with Rick Jenneret. Had a great style, great enthusiasm, and uh, and hit a lot of people hard because, again, when you grew up with these people, they you become entwined with them. So Rick Jenneret passing away at the age of 81, inducted in the NHL Hockey Hall of Fame. Just one of the greats. In fact, they had a wonderful ceremony in April of 2022 just about three weeks before his final Sabres broadcast at the, uh, at the Key Bank Center in Buffalo. And the place was sold out. And great tribute. The Sabres did a wonderful job, a great highlight reel. And they raised his banner to the rafters, right next to Dominic Hasek, the French connection, some of the great uh, Sabres. I think there's only, I'm not sure how many people, but I think there's maybe a dozen or so. 15 that are whose names are hanging in the rafters and there's a big banner with the sabers blue and gold colors and it says rj with a microphone underneath it with the years that uh, he was the broadcaster 1971 to 2022 amazing career passed away rick wherever you are i hope that you are having a nice cold beer and looking down because i'll tell you your voice will remain etched in my mind in eternity. Rick Jenneret, passing away at the age of 81, a true legend, broadcast legend, legend in the hockey world, and overall great broadcaster. Rest in peace.
Maduro cigar wrappers are known for their unique complexity of flavor that include richness, spiciness, and subtle notes of sweetness. Now, if you take a Maduro wrapper and make an entire cigar of Maduro wrapper and Maduro binder, Maduro filler, what do you get? Camacho Triple Maduro, a Mexican San Andreas Maduro wrapper, a Mexican Corojo Maduro binder, and then Maduro fillers from Honduras, the Dominican Republic, and Brazil, you get a cigar that is dark, rich, full-on flavor, medium to full-bodied, with notes of cedar, roasted nuts, some pepper, and a subtle sweetness. The Camacho Triple Maduro, available at DavidoffGeneva.com. Unlimited and secure supply of pleasure sticks available for the general to enjoy. It's time for National Cigar Litation Maneuvers. When I saw the mugshot of President Trump, I happened to see on social media somebody uh, posted a side-by-side comparison with one of the famous Winston Churchill photographs. And they looked both very similar, resolute, determined, with a little bit of anger. And they also look tough. And so it was very easy to decide what cigar I should enjoy today. And that is the Winston Churchill, the original series. A nice, mild to medium bodied cigar. Very, very pleasant. Features a, an Ecuadorian wrapper, Peruvian binder, Dominican filler. As I said, mild plus to medium. Very, very pleasant cigar. And I love the band. It's just a side silhouette profile of Winston Churchill with a cigar in his mouth and his hat. And underneath it says Davidoff. And it comes in a Petite Panatella, a Bellicoso, a Petite Corona, a Robusto, a Toro, and of course, a Churchill. It's won many awards, and I've decided to pull out the Petite Panatella. This is not a big cigar. Four inches in length with a 38 ring gauge. So a Panatella is usually about seven and a half by 38, also known as a Lancero, if it has the pigtail on the top. So this is a petite Panatella because a Panatella is normally a 38 ring gauge or 38, 64, seven inch in diameter, four inches. This is a great cigar. If you want to go out and 15, 20 minutes, have a cigar, let's say you want to walk your dog, You're by the pool. You just have time for a quickie. You're out on a hotel balcony. It's a great stick. You cannot go wrong. It's got some very nice uh, hints of spice, some nice floral notes, some sweetness, just also a little bit of a cedar, just a very, very pleasant cigar all the way. The suggested retail for the, what they call the Raconteur Petite Panatella, is about eight and a half dollars per stick. And the cigars in the Winston Churchill original series are all of the same complexion. Mild plus to medium, very, very pleasant. Great cigar if you are having, let's say, a celebratory occasion. There could be some people that are experienced connoisseurs, some people that are neophytes. But you want a cigar that will not be overly powerful, that'll be tame, but still flavorful. The Davidoff Winston Churchill Original Series, 
would be a or would be an absolutely fabulous selection. Cigar altering and highly sharpened leaf exposing device. Self sharpening double edged stainless steel cutter ready for action. Maximum BTU flame throwing and heat producing apparatus. In my hand, I've got from the Cigar Dave Arndy Laboratories the grenade because it looks like a grenade. Giant tank, nice rubber feel around it. I mean, this thing looks like a grenade. Single jet butane flame, but you can adjust it. This thing flies out about anywhere between an inch to about four inches. This will light my Winston Churchill Petit Panatella Bronto. Cigar, Cigar pre-lightation checklist complete. No faults detected. Area clear of all enemies of pleasure. Approval to go throttle up in three, two, one. Here comes the cut. Let me just take one additional side. There we go. Perfect cut. Doesn't take much on a small Panatella with a 38 ring gauge. And again, I'm going to place the flame about two inches away from the foot of the cigar. I want heat to cause combustion. I don't want the flame to cause combustion. Again, this won't take long. I'm just rotating the foot of the cigar. I've got the wrapper that is properly lit. Now I'm going to toast the foot of the filler, and now I puff and rotate. Mm. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm. Done. Perfect even amber glow. Doesn't take much on a 38 ring gauge. Very nice aroma. Mmm. Definitely notes of cedar, little woodiness on the palate, a little bit of spice, ton, just a tinge of maybe sweetness, not much, but very pleasant. I'll let this settle for just a little bit because I have to get ready for the proper accoutrement to this Winston Churchill original series, Petite Panatella. Scotch, bourbon, beer, this is the Bold Alpha Weekly Spirits Tasting on The Cigar Dave Show. Well, I have just pulled out a bottle of scotch. I mean, it's only appropriate that if I'm going to have a cigar named after Winston Churchill, the legendary prime minister of Great Britain, that I have his favorite libation. And he always, always had a scotch nearby. So I have pulled out the Balvini Sweet Toast of America Oak Scotch. This is age 12 years, and this is very interesting. Let me open the bottle here. It's got a nice, almost a lightish, I would say just a light caramel color as I pour some of this. Interesting story behind this. The, it's 12-year-old Balvini. And it is finished in a new American oak cask, which when Balvini receives it in Scotland, they put an additional char on it. So it gives it a little bit more of the char onto the, onto the Balvini. It is bottled at 86 proof or 43% alcohol by volume. It is one of the, what they call three stories single malts released by Balvini. And as I look at this, and by the way, the suggested retail on this is anywhere between 80 to about $85, $88, depending on where you go. Again, the Balvini Sweet Toast of American Oak, 12-year. Let me 
take a little sniff here. Get it on the nose. Mm. Mm. Wow. Very nice. Mm. Let me just... Mm. Getting some oak, some vanilla, a little citrus. Almost a little ginger, too. Ginger, a little cinnamon. Let's say cheers. Taste. Mmm. Mm. Definite some lemony type zest. A little bit of citrus orange. Let me take another sip here. Mm. Almost a little uh, light honey note and some oakiness. Very, very pleasant. Now let me take a puff of my Winston Churchill. Mm. Absolutely fantastic. All right, when we continue, around the corner we will be joined by Chris... Landry. Chris is the football guru we have had on the show in years past of LandryFootball.com. College football's around the corner. I absolutely cannot wait. It has been way too long, and we'll talk college football with Chris Landry around the corner. Gurkha has long been the king when it comes to opulent, grandly made cigars. And the new Gurkha Pure Evil more than lives up to that legacy. Gurkha originally launched the Pure Evil 15 years ago as a limited edition cigar. They went back to their blend vault. They tweaked the blend to add more flavor, more complexity. The result is a Gurkha Pure Evil that is loaded with flavor, full body, Full notes of richness. Habano wrapper, Nicaraguan binder, Nicaraguan filler. Don't let the name fool you. The Gurkha Pure Evil is pure cigar pleasure. Gurkha, the world's finest cigars. Visit GurkhaCigars.com. favorite time of the year. The weather starts to cool down. We go into autumn, and that means one thing. Football is back, and it all starts with college football this weekend. And for our annual college football rundown and preview, we welcome Chris Landry of Landry Football, who is in his football cave. I think uh, now you're going to be in hibernation for the next probably four or five months, Chris, but great to have you back. Oh, it's good to be back. Got to be in a cave with all this hot weather, getting ready for the football season. Yeah, yeah you're to... <laughs> on the bayous of Louisiana, so it's like here in Florida, hot and unbearably humid. No question about it. Hot, dry, humid is uh, the order of the day, and getting football practices in uh, around the Deep South has been really challenging. That's why everybody has uh, these indoor facilities to get ready. But, uh, yeah, it's ready to go. Another college football season is upon us. You know, Chris, it's amazing how things have changed where when I was playing high school football, we do, you know, two a days, sometimes three a days uh, in the hot weather. You couldn't take water breaks. Things have changed dramatically. They have, you know, when you look at it, I know let's just take in the pro game and but the college game kind of in, in the high school certainly follow with it. But it used to be that, you know, the game, you know, was was seasonal. I mean, you you uh, you had to spend a lot of time getting in football shape because you took a lot of time off from football. Well, now, as we know, even at the high school level and the college level, there's these off-season conditioning programs. So there's 
not the need to have the two-a-days or sometimes three-a-days to get into shape. You report to your camp sessions, college, pro, high school, in shape with the on the heels of all the conditioning and the workout drills. So it's, uh, it does change. It's, uh, you know, I think it's made it uh, more of a year-round sport, but the uh, guys are more prepared. And hopefully if you do it right, with the better nutrition and hydration techniques, you can improve the injury factor, which is always going to be there, of course. Chris, when we look at college football, you and I both remember the days when the Big Ten represented actually 10 teams in the Midwest. You had the SEC, which were teams in the Southeast. You had the ACC, which were teams in on the Atlantic coast, the Big East. My Syracuse uh, Orangemen, they played in the Northeast against traditional rivals. And then you had, of course, the was the Pac-8 and the Pac-10. Things have gone into a massive state of flux where now, I mean, and I think the first, what didn't make sense to me is for many years, Syracuse would play West Virginia. West Virginia would play Pitt. You know, those Northeast uh, teams, those Northeast rivalries. And then all of a sudden, West Virginia goes into the Big 12. And I said, that makes no sense. Morgantown going to Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, Texas. But that was just the start. And this this summer has been absolutely crazy. And it's getting crazier. It is. It's certainly, I think anytime you have a large infiltration of money, this has become a big, big business everyone's going to want their piece and everyone's looking at what someone else is getting. And if you're looking at a group of schools that are getting, you know, twice as much as you perhaps are going to get, then you've got to figure out, well, we've got to move towards getting into an alignment with those group of folks or else it's, we're going to be just lost in the shuffle. You know, um, the, the realignment and movement, it's, it's actually taken place for a long time, and it's not the first time. It's just that we've seen more movement and more realignment in a shorter period of time that's just become more drastic. I can remember you mentioned Syracuse, and I can remember Dave Gavitt, the great commissioner of the Big East, God right. rest his soul, started the great basketball league. He thought, and I know that Joe Paterno approached him about you know, also having a football element. And, of course, the, the basketball schools, mainly the, the all-basketball Catholic schools, voted against it. And I remember Dave Gavitt. I remember him, the exact quote. He says, we're going to rue the day that we did not do this. Because he wanted to ha- have a football element. And so that's when Penn State says, fine, you know, we, there's no biggies for us. We're going to go to the Big Ten. But, you know, yeah, you could have had the the Pitt, Penn State, Syracuse, Boston College, you know, Rutgers, all those schools, um, you could have had a, you know, a, a, a viable, keep it, you know, geographically aligned, and that's the way I grew up with it as well. But none of that matters anymore uh, because it's just all about the money, and it uh, it's not great for college athletics because I think that the travel for football is fine. That's the sport that travels the least. It's the sports like gymnastics or soccer where, you know, you're having to go from, you know, Morgantown, West Virginia to Lubbock, Texas, or, you know, now it's going to be Eugene, Oregon to, you know, to, to, to uh, you, know, um, you know, Piscataway, New Jersey. I mean, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, and that's going to have to become more creative with how you do it, but 
none of this has anything to do with anything other than money. And the money is driven by football. And that's why we've had the changes and we're going to continue to have the changes. And I don't know, one day we might have a, an AFC NFC thing with the big 10 and the SEC. And, you know, you might have, you know, 32, 30, 35, 40 teams in each, in each conference. I don't know where we're headed, but we're headed towards something like that. TV drives all these decisions because the money is driving all of that. Yeah. It's amazing how, you know, the, the, the pack, 12 just or packed whatever they call it these days you can't even you know remember how many teams are in each each conference because the numbers don't really align anymore but how it just disintegrated so quickly and apparently uh, a number of teams that decided they were going to go over to the big 12 big 12 had a deal with espn that if they add a few more teams well they get another 30 million or another 60 million depending on how many teams they bring in so you're right the money has just driven everything and to a degree, it's. I think you're right. We're going to see maybe just an NFL style system where we may have just four, you know, big conferences, and that's it. And everybody else is left in the cold. I think the big thing that we're going to have to watch is remember, as recent as last year, we said we we're going to move in 2024 to a 12 team playoff system, and part of it was each of the conferences are going to be guaranteed a spot. Well, hello, the the pack now four. There are four teams in it. Are they going to be given a spot? I, I don't, I mean, you know, how concrete is that agreement? I mean, can you go back on it? Can you redo it? Uh, is the Pac-12 going to maybe merge with the Mountain West? And is that league with basically the Pac-12 with Oregon, Washington State, Stanford, Cal, and the Mountain West, which is Boise, Wyoming, San Diego State, et al., are they going to get an automatic berth into the playoffs? Is that going to be you know, accepted by the others. That's clearly not what was not clearly the plan when this started. So all of this is, is a constant evolving. And it's to give you an idea how quickly things have changed. It wasn't long ago that Texas and Oklahoma were within like 24 hours of going to the Pac-12 or, right. you know, at that time Pac-12. And they were going to, they were going to, well, and then basically, the Big 12 came up with a system and the Texas got started the Longhorn Network and got a $30 million a deal for like, I don't know, I think 10 years with ESPN. And that, that, that kept them in the Big 12. But you could see then, and then they go from there to the complete disintegration because the last two conference commissioners of the Pac-12 and the, let's call it what it is, the presidents of the Pac-12 they just dropped the ball. And, you know, I, I will say this. People are critical of the SEC and the Big Ten. Those are the only two leagues that know how to run college football from a business standpoint. And if people are critical and are living in a, in a naive world of, well, it's the purity of college, that, that, led, that went out the window a long time ago. It's a big business. And if you don't know how to run your business, you're going to fall by the wayside. And we're seeing this with the Pac-12. And right now the ACC is trying to hold on to their league, and, and we don't know what's going to happen, but obviously everyone is kind of positioning themselves towards the future, and it's all based on TV. It's the last. It's the reason why the Big Ten made their last move by adding Oregon and Washington. Their TV partners said, hey, look, you know, Michigan State Maryland is not going to move the needle on TV. We've got, you know, we've got a primetime game. We've got CBS. We've got all these networks. 
we need to have more more quality games so tv needs better product more content that's going to be you know more viable to sell so they needed to go and get more good games so if you got an oregon penn state or a, uh, a washington michigan that's going to be a better maybe third or fourth game from the Big Ten than you would have normally had. And that's why all these decisions are being made. The SEC's had that for a few years, and now that's what you're looking for. Hey, we're going to have all these games on our networks, and all these networks are saying, if I'm going to put that type of money, I need to have better product. So to have better product, you get more teams in it. That's, that's why we've gotten to this point. There will be case studies at major business schools and universities across the country about the disintegration of the the Pac-12, because when or Pac-10, whatever they call it, I can't even remember <laughs> with all the crazy. Now it's really what the Pac-2 or Pac-3? Yeah, it, it's the, it's the Pac-4. I mean, I, it's still technically the Pac-12 because they they're still they're all there this year. Right. But there's only as of 2024 right now, there's only four teams. Stanford, Cal, um, and then obviously Oregon State, Washington State, and and yeah. So we don't know. I think by next year, it'll either be called stay the Pac-12 and add the Mountain West in it, or maybe Stanford, Cal, and SMU will go to the ACC, or maybe Florida. I don't know what's going to happen with a lot of these uh, programs. Well, there will be case studies done because what is amazing is first of all. You had this, not the current commissioner, but the previous commissioner spent big money on a Taj Mahal type of headquarters. And then they had deals, I think, with ESPN or Fox, uh, a good amount of money, $30 million, I think, if, if somewhere in that neck of the woods. And they passed thinking they could get more money. And then the Big 12 outmaneuvered them. And it is going to be, this will be case studies in business schools of how, you know, a once strong and powerful conference disintegrated really in a matter of, a year. And let's let's remind folks that it was the Big 12 that went after the last uh, movement. The Big 12 went to the Pac-12 and said, let's have a discussion about maybe merging. Because, right. And it was the Pac-12 that said, no, no, we're good. Well, you know, the Big 12 went, and, and Brent Yormark, the commissioner there, certainly has schooled them. I mean, he inherited – you know, the fact that they were going to lose Texas and Oklahoma. And that, that's not something you can lose and be the same. But he says, okay, we're going to go out and get numbers. We're going to go out and, and get, you know, we, we're going to get the best programs from the AAC, which was the best non, you know, Power Five, uh, which that's now changed. And we're going to put good quality numbers. And then, of course, he was able to go and, and convince uh, – you know, Colorado will come back, and then we all know Utah, and then the two Arizona schools. So, uh, yeah, they they fleece the Pac-12, and your mark looks like a superstar among the commissioner. Uh, when you, it's it's he's kind of looking like the guy that went to Kansas State and Bill Snyder and built a program out of nowhere. He's kind of saved the Big 12, and obviously you've seen George Glikoff following Larry Scott in the Pac-12, and the as well as and let's put some some criticism. On the, on the feet of the presidents of the universities because they vote and make these decisions. Right. But you've got to have a commissioner that has the type of stroke and political power that can go to the presidents and convince them that this is the way to go. But a lot of those ivory tower, you know, I call snobby bow-tying-wearing presidents from the Pac-12 realize that, uh, uh-oh, you know, they, they have really lost their way in terms of 
you know, uh, athletics and fundraising and money, and, and that's why the, some of their uh, schools decided to say we're moving on. Well, Brett Yormark was an outstanding hire. He had an excellent reputation in uh, mm -hmm. professional sports and sports management. So the key is you got to have good management, somebody good at the top, and, and the Big 12 nailed it. Let's take a look at the AP Top 25, and then we'll get into the various conferences. But no surprise, last year's college football champion, Georgia, number one again atop the AP Top 25. It's the best program in college football right now. And Alabama's certainly very good and historically over a longer period has been the premier program. But what has put Georgia ahead of Alabama in recent years is that Georgia has, they've both recruited well, but Georgia is what Alabama used to be, the best line of scrimmage team, both sides of the ball in college football. So they don't need to be great every week. They're going to just maul you and beat you as I like to say, Dave, it's not how good you are when you're at your best. It's how good you are when you're at your worst. You know, it's when Tiger Woods used to say, I, you know, winning championships with this B game. You're not going to have your A game. And somebody can have a great game one week. You need to be able to condense the game, win at the line of scrimmage, and that what, that's what Georgia has done. They're great on the defensive line. They're very good on the offensive line. They've got good backs. They're just really consistent. And they've, they've opened up the passing game to when they need big plays, like they were did against TCU and blew them out, they have great balance. So they are the premier program. I don't know if they're going to win it all, but I don't see anybody beating them during the regular season. I expect them to be in the playoffs, and we'll see if they can three-peat. I don't know. Well, that's an interesting tale because you have Kirby Smart, who was the – the uh, student, and then you had Nick Saban, who was the mentor uh, at Alabama while Kirby was the defensive coordinator, and now Kirby has kind of surpassed the mentor. Do you think, and I don't believe this to be the case, but do you think that maybe Nick Saban's time is starting his, his careers now? He's clearly, I think, in his 70s, if I'm not mistaken, or, mm -hmm. or close thereabouts. Do you think maybe now that I don't say the game passing him by, but, you know, to recruit, you got to be. It's a younger game, and I look at it with Jim Beheim. Jim Beheim just, I thought, should have been should have retired many, many years ago, and it took almost three seasons of poor performance to finally say, enough, it's, it's time for a change. And do you think that even though Alabama's certainly going to be a top five, top ten program, an elite program, but do you think there are going to be calls that if they don't win championships, that all of a sudden they say, maybe it's time for Nick to go? Well, you have people that are going to say that. But here's the difference is Alabama's recruiting as well as anybody right there with Georgia. They're recruiting class for this next year. And the following year's recruiting class is like best in the country. So they haven't slowed down. Here's what's happened with Alabama. And, and I've known Nick very well. And so he's gone from the point of, he, he went and got these great quarterbacks, and they became more of a passing team. And I think in that process, you, you become more finesse. So you can't be this, you know, spread it out, and up-tempo, and then be a great defense. You can't. Uh, you, you just, you just it, one, that aspect of the offense is going to negatively affect your defense. And so what's happened is, and look, by the way, they won two titles doing it that way. So it, it's not like it didn't work. But here's what happens. 
is if you have, like two years ago, Alabama's top two receivers were injured in the championship game against Georgia. Well, they lost. And people will say, well, had they had them, they would have won. Well, that's why you're no longer the best program in the country because you're over-reliant on the a quarterback or the top two receivers. You're, they couldn't turn around and be physical and run the football and do it differently like they used to. So I think what Nick is doing now is, I, this is my guess, is we're going to see here this year in the next couple of years, him going back to more of a line of scrimmage type team to challenge Georgia. Because, again, Georgia is now the new Alabama. They are doing what Alabama used to do, and Alabama became a little more finesse. It's not that Alabama's really lost their way because, I mean, they finished fifth in the country. It's the fact that they couldn't stop at all Tennessee. They had to try to outscore them. They couldn't stop LSU. Heck, they were fortunate to beat Texas and Texas A&M. They're, for Alabama to have to win shootout games, that's what teams with lesser personnel have to do. And that's not what Alabama normally has to do. So I think he's going to try to focus. I think the defense should be a lot better. I don't think he's stepping aside anytime soon. Now, it's a year-to-year situation. He's now crossed the 70-year-old mark. He's going to be, you know, uh, 72 in, on Halloween. Uh, that's when his birthday is. He recently bought a home near Tiger Woods for $17.5 million. So people are speculating, oh, well, he and Terry are going to retire after this year. Well, I think that's going to be their retirement home, but it doesn't mean they're going to do it right now. He just loves the grind. And as long as he's healthy, and um, I think he's going to want to do it. But I, I think you just hit on it. When you start to not be able to recruit as well, then that's when you say it's really slipped. The, pro- the problem for opponents of Alabama is he hadn't slowed down in recruiting. It's gotten better and better, and I think he's challenged and motivated to get back. So for right now, I don't think the end is near, but it's a year-to-year situation with him. And I think one of the – interesting things about Alabama is they've had tremendous assistant coach turnover because of their success mm-hmm. that these assistant coaches, offensive coordinators, defensive coordinators, even position coaches get snapped up by other programs. Look, Kirby was the defensive coordinator mm-hmm. gets snapped up to be the head coach at Georgia. And we've seen it in many other uh, cases with the uh, Alabama assistant coaches. So that's also, when you look at the, the tremendous turnover that that has to uh, have some effect. Well, it does, and here's the thing about it, though. He's had, like, uh, on the offensive side, he's won national titles with three or four different coordinators. So he's had turnover throughout his entire career. But just like with recruiting, sometimes your hires are not as good as others. So when you maybe have turnovers, seven or eight at the coordinator position over, you know, say, six or seven-year period on both sides of the ball – if four of them are really good higher than three or not, then you're going to start to have it. And I think we've starting to see that. So the turnover that you that you speak of are so true. But he has been so good at taking our Kirby Smart leaves. Jeremy Pruitt comes in. They win a title. I mean, you know, but, but it seems like it slipped a little bit. For whatever reason, he's not been able to find that right guy. He's misevaluated certain guys that he's put on his staff, and that's why he made changes this offseason. But that's happened, too, a little bit. Even though the recruiting has been good, they've missed on certain guys there. They 
recruited, you know, the, the Brockermeyer twins, who's the son of the Blake Brockermeyer, who's a great NFL player and University of Texas player. They were supposed to be the, the greatest things, you know, since sliced bread. Got them away from Texas. They haven't panned out. And other guys like that on the recruiting trail. So recruiting and coaching changes haven't been as good of hires or moves uh, that it's been in the past. And on the other side, Georgia's just done a better job of it. It's not like Alabama's, you know, slipped. It's that Georgia's just passed them. The second best program in the country right now in college football is Alabama. It's, you know, it's, it's they're still, you know, at that level, but they're behind Georgia. So I think when they slip to where they're not even top five, and that's when you know things have regressed to the point where, it's maybe not getting back. But right now, I think it's it's attainable. If Georgia comes back just a little bit, I think Alabama certainly, to me, a playoff-caliber team this year. Well, three of the top five ranked programs or schools this year in the AP Top 25 come from the SEC. you got Georgia number one, Alabama number four, LSU number five, and at two and three, two Big Ten programs. Sergeant Steve's Michigan Wolverines and then the Ohio State Buckeyes. No surprises uh, in terms of, of the, the, the schools that are there. And then you look at number six, you've got USC. Number seven is Penn State. Number eight, Florida State. Number nine, Clemson. Number 10, Washington. So your take on the top 10. I think it's, and it's always difficult preseason polls. Um, you know, it's a, based upon last year and now with, Incoming guys, transfer portal recruiting, it's it's hard to really judge. But college football is pretty easy. It's pretty chalky. Um, look, if I'm looking at who's who are the playoff caliber teams, I just mentioned two, Georgia and Alabama, and I would say Michigan and Ohio State. Yep. Now, the, with Michigan, Ohio State's been really intriguing because Michigan's had success against the Buckeyes the last couple of years because just like I just talked about with Georgia and Alabama, Michigan is the more physical football team. They're dominant on both sides of the line of scrimmage. They've got a great running game. And Ohio State's become a little bit more finesse. Now, Ohio State's probably, they've definitely got more speed and more overall talent. But they're not as physical in the trenches. And that's why Michigan has got them. But by the same token, that's what's caused Michigan some problems of advancing. Like, for example, you know, they should have beaten TCU. But... They couldn't handle TCU's speed, and Michigan's passing game hasn't been as good. So we'll see if that's going to improve going forward, and that can determine whether Michigan could advance and not only get to the playoffs but advance in the playoffs. But uh, those two teams are great. I think USC is certainly a program to watch. Lincoln Riley has got a great offense. But, you know, just like when he was at Oklahoma, he – he is more concerned about the aesthetic beauty of his offense. And his defenses, speaking of spread and tempo, have never been good enough. Are they, and, and I don't know that they're going to be good enough, again, to go through the gauntlet of the Pac-12, which, by the way, is still a pretty good league top to bottom. They don't have a great team, but they got really good teams. And Oregon Washington are two really good teams that could – could also, and I think Utah's good too. All of those teams could contend for the Pac-12, and you know, by by proxy, could be in the playoffs. But I think that that I wonder if USC's defense is going to be good enough because, and with their offense, 
kind of compress the game a little bit more and take the air out of it a little bit more. That, that doesn't seem to be Lincoln's style, but that's definitely the teams that I would see. I would throw in the fact that Clemson's got a pretty good defense. Garrett Riley, Lincoln Riley's brother, is coming in as the offensive coordinator. You got to like the quarterback, Kate Klubnick. Don't don't rule out Clemson. And Florida State is the flavor of the month. People are picking them to win the ACC, and we'll see. That's a really good team, a great matchup opening up in week one against LSU. Yeah. LSU's a team to watch. I think LSU is capable of winning the West. I think LSU's got a better quarterback room than Alabama. I think they've got, if you took the top four defensive linemen in the entire SEC, two of them are on LSU. LSU, if they have good break health-wise, can get to the playoffs. I don't think they're as deep as Georgia. I don't think they're as deep as Alabama. But I think the front-line talent is as good as any in the SEC uh, at LSU. And I think Brian Kelly has done a great job. He inherited a mess from Ed Orgeron. He doesn't have his full complement of players. But, boy, he has done a phenomenal job in short order. just a second year. Right. Um, and to, to have the program where it is, I would say those three in the SEC – I think those two in the Big Ten, and we'll see what comes out of the the Pac-12, and I throw Clemson, Florida State. I think, you know, we know that the four teams are going to come from those groups, although last year at this time I didn't tell you that TCU was going to make it because I didn't think they would. So maybe we'll have a surprise again. Well, here's a little wrinkle the first three weeks of the season for Michigan because the school has suspended uh, uh, head coach Jim Harbaugh for three games for apparently lying to NCAA investigators, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not totally familiar with with all that took place. And they've got a triumvirate of coaches that will be the acting head coach. And he has also brought on his father as, I I don't know if it's a temporary assistant coach, who's a longtime head coach, Mm -hmm. uh, to oversee things the first three weeks. That That could look. There could be an upset in the making there. Well, I'd be shocked. First of all, I, I think that it's ridiculous that uh, he suspended it all for what he did. Um, and, and the cover-up's worse than the crime. It was the lying part of it because, right. I, 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 you know, it's the issue. Look at the teams that they're playing. They, they don't need Jim Harbaugh. They don't need Jack Harbaugh. They don't need uh, – they could have half the coaching staff sit out of those three games. They're going to win those three games. So they're – and then here's the thing about it is it's only for the games. So Jim's going to be there uh, all week in all the meetings and everything. It's, so it's, it's to me, I think they get it out of the way. They move on. Hopefully they appease the NCAA. They'll be fine. Uh, they I expect them fully to be 3-0 and and then go in. And, again, to me it's about, you know, whether they can run the table and, and we'll see whether they can or not. And as the season goes along, uh, this team is so good still on the offensive line. I think they got the best running back room in the country. I think their defense is just so physical and rock solid. I think the only thing is, do they get enough out of the passing game? It'll be enough to go through the Big Ten, uh, but is it going to be enough again to beat Ohio State, to, to advance in the playoffs? That's going to be the key. I, I think Michigan's now got to the point where they're one of the elite. It's just, or can they catch a Georgia? Can they catch an Alabama? Can they beat a team that's maybe, you know, a this year's version of a TCU? Could they beat a USC if UCA, USC spreads them out? Can they match up points? That's where I think 
Michigan is. We kind of know what the floor is. It's very high, but the ceiling might be limited unless their passing game can be a little bit more dynamic when it needs to be. And that's usually not Jim Harbaugh's uh, specialty. I was not aware that Harbaugh uh, could coach during the week. I thought it was three weeks where he was totally mm-hmm. away from the program. Mm-mm. No, he can practice, be in meetings, do everything. He just can't be on the sidelines. Yeah, I don't think it's going to have an effect at all. In fact, I think it's going to kind of, in a way, the, the, the kids react to say, we're going to show that we, we can do it without you. You know, some of would do, we're going to do it for you. Some are going to say, we're going to show you we can do, do it without you. <laughs> Let's take a look. We've got some uh, games coming up, actually, this week. Actually, a pretty good – I think it's going to be kind of a neat game. You've got Navy and Notre Dame over in uh, Ireland. Yeah, and I'm curious to see, to me, the, the, the key thing here, and I don't know how much you're going to throw the football at Notre Dame in this game or need to, but Sam Hartman, the Wake Forest transfer quarterback, um, it's going to be fun to watch, and, and I, I think he's got a lot of talent, next-level talent. I think he's an outstanding pro prospect. Um, that'll determine how deep and how far Notre Dame can go. Navy's uh, dropped off quite a bit, a, a, a little bit as a program. So this is absolutely a game that Notre Dame has got to win and likely win big. Um, I, I think to me it's just going to be watching. they got two good you know, tackles at Notre Dame, and, and I think they're, Navy's going to try to do a lot of run blitzes and a lot of um, – pre-snap movements defensively because they're going to have to take advantage of their quickness because I think Notre Dame is certainly more physical, bigger, stronger, and I think they've got ways to beat you in both the run and the pass game, uh, certainly against Navy. Well, there's seven games today, and then next Thursday there is, I think, about seven or eight games, and then Friday there are games. Saturday is really when it kicks off. I think they call this week zero, and then next week is technically week one where there's a whole slate of games. But let's take a look at some of the big matchups uh, this year. First of all, I think Ohio State-Michigan, that's always a great rivalry, but this year that has probably extra significance. Yeah, I think the issue is are they both unbeaten? Do they both have one loss? Does one have one loss? Is it, you know, I mean, I, I think that's going to be the key. I think both have separated. I think that Penn State has got talent. But if you look at how Penn State played both Michigan and Ohio State last year, it wasn't even close. So I think it's it's a, it's clearly one and two, and then there's a drop-off. And um, I think there's a lot of new names and new faces but uh, in, in the Big Ten. But who can challenge those teams? I, I, I think, again, both of them have a chance to go unbeaten in the league, and we'll see if they can get it done. Well, I have no problem wagering a high amount of money that it will not be Northwestern challenging <laughs> Ohio State or Michigan. Yeah, that, that's something that has been – you know, Pat Fitzgerald was Northwestern football. I mean, right. he did a phenomenal job. certainly a player. and um, You know, what he's done as a coach, and they've kind of fallen on the hard times. That Speaking of staff – he lost, you know, Hankowitz and a couple of his good coordinators, and the consistency kind of fell by the wayside. I still wonder, though, and maybe it's a cynic in me, but, you know, if, if they still – if they were coming off three straight years of, you know, either winning the Big Ten West or close to it, something tells me they wouldn't have made the move on pack. Uh, I think this is something that they went through the suspension – and then they got the, you know, in today's uh, world we live in, um, the, the media jumped on it and the president said, oh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to take the heat off myself and I'm going to fire him now. 
I, I don't know. I think what what happened in the program was a bad look. I thought it was bad for Pat to have that happen. Uh, and, and I, you know, he's been held accountable, but I thought they could have handled it differently. I think this program is going to fall spiral down and to be what it used to be when I can remember when Danny Green was the coach. And, I mean, it was the worst program maybe in all of college football. I think it's headed close to that now. They've got unbelievable facilities right there on Lake Michigan. Right. That was built because of the success that Pat had. So whether he deserved to be fired or he didn't, one thing I will say, they're going to miss him as the head coach. And I think this program is going to be in bad, bad shape. Yeah, big time, big time trouble. And I was reading some of the Chicago newspapers uh, talking about it. And this year is probably going to be a disaster. And that's a tough school because, you know, uh, the coach played there. He was, he bled, you know, Northwestern purple, and it's not going to be easy to get somebody that wants to go to a program like that that's really, you know, most, most coaches want to go to a program they think they can turn around relatively short time and use it as a stepping stone, and Northwestern is no longer that. So that'll be, that'll be interesting to watch. Uh, how about um, LSU Alabama, November 4th? Should be a big game. Well, it's probably going to be for the West. I don't think that anybody else can win the West um, or would not likely win the West. I think it's going to be between those two. Um, a key, again, what's going to be the record? I think that, uh, you know, Alabama's got Texas and um, a couple of games prior to that. LSU obviously has Florida State. And, you know, the, the SEC schedule's always uh, got a little bit of a minefield. So what is going to be the record of both of those teams going in? I would think good enough for both that that game will likely determine who's going to represent the West. LSU won it last year at home. they got to go on the road this year. Um, you know, right now, LSU looks like they've got, a, again, a, a better quarterback situation. In fact, they look like they've got two quarterbacks that are proven that can win in the SEC. Alabama, not quite yet. But you just hit on it. That's in November. It's going to be a different-looking Alabama team in November than now. I, I get the feeling that that – Alabama may be tested more at the beginning of the year, like the likes of Texas, where they may have to outscore them and may struggle. I think Alabama's going to be just fine, and at home, I'd probably give them a little bit of an edge. But we got a we got a ways to go to figure out how these teams will settle in before that. November eighteenth, also in the SEC, Georgia at Tennessee. Tennessee had a great season last year. They did. They lose Hendon Hooker. Joe Milton is not nearly as accurate. Uh, Tennessee really. Uh, didn't match up, did not match up well against Georgia last year. It was between the hedges. Um, Tennessee's, again, a finesse team, a finesse offense, a horizontal stretch. They're never going to be great defensively because of their offensive style. I don't think they match up well against Georgia. Um, and while that may be intriguing, uh, a matchup, and I don't know that Tennessee's going to have as good of a season as they did last year. I tend to doubt it, but... Uh, they certainly are capable of surprising on a on a given game in or game out. Um, I don't like their chances even at home against Georgia. I think there's a there's quite a bit of separation between Georgia and the rest of the East. By the way, isn't it going to be interesting though? We're, this is last year that we're going to be talking about East and West. It's going to be entire SEC now. I mean, as we expand it, there's not going to be an East or West. So. Um, you know, the schools that maybe would have a shot at maybe competing, 
and like the Tennessees of the world, they're going to be competing against everybody. Like right, right now, they only have to compete against Georgia. You know, if you're Florida, you not only got to build your program back to where respectability, you got to find a way. You got to you got to go up against LSU and Alabama, and not just against them, but within the league. Uh, it's going to be a tougher climb for what I would call those mediocre type programs that feel like they can compete in the East or the West. They won't be able to do that as well, and I think Tennessee's going to be one of them. What's your prediction on Florida this year? I'm hopeful for Billy in that program that they can get to maybe six wins. I think really? Gonna, I think they're going to be patient with them. This is a rebuild. This is a cultural change in a recruiting structural change you look at the schedule i mean there's there's six teams that are just better than they are talent wise it's a if they're patient i think it'll get better my concern is if there's only four wins three four wins there's going to be panic and upheaval among the boosters and the fan base there needs to be i think a 500 record to at least because right now I think Scott Strickland has said, "Hey, we, we're we're committed. We're not. They've done the two years and move on. I think they're committed to bringing this guy back. But I think he needs to show some sign of improvement. Um, and I think the recruiting needs to really start to turn around. They, they're not only just mediocre, but they're mediocre when Georgia is the elite program, and they just that just doesn't sit well with the Gators when you're not even in the same stratosphere as." the Georgia Bulldogs right now, and they don't like hearing it, but that's the reality. This is not a quick fix. I mean, Urban Meyer is not walking through that door. Steve Spurrier is not walking through that door. There's no quick fix answers in Gainesville. I don't know if Napier is going to be able to get it done, but I think they need to be patient and see because I think their quick triggers have caused them and set their programs back, and it's hurt their recruiting. The one thing we know about Billy Napier He's organized. He probably is structurally organized the most like, what, uh, along with, uh, other than Kirby Smart, of course, of what Nick Saban does. He's just not as good at it, of course. And we can see if he can get better infrastructure and in recruiting. If he can't get it done, at least the program will be on better, solid foundation ground for the next head coach if he can't get it done. But to me, that needs to be a couple of years from now because if you change it over, I think you're going to set it back, uh, you know, two or three more years, which they really can't afford to do. Yeah, you have to have a plan and allow the head coach to come in and totally, you know, work his plan. I remember when Steve Spurrier was the head coach, the fans wanted to run him out of town and they were winning left and right. Yeah, well, in fact, Steve told me, and you know, one of the frustrations, and that's his school. I mean, we know that's his, that's his, that's in his blood. Right. He said when when they when he was winning, and, and it was like they didn't win the title every year. They became disgruntled, and he said, "You know, I, heck with this. I'm, I I need to get away." And that's when he decided to go in the NFL, and that didn't work. But he just got frustrated with his own people that they didn't appreciate. It is the most impatient fan base in the SEC. I mean, it really is. I know that there's like unrealistic expectations at Alabama. If they don't win the title every year, they're disappointed. But at Florida, their Florida fans are, think they're going to win 10 games this year. And they're not even, it's not even possible to even, that's not even a consideration. They're so far away from being decent, not good, but decent, 
they don't realize it. it you know, so there's the biggest gap between expectations and reality is with Florida fans. And so I, I think that patience is needed, even though it's very, uh, very seldom uh, uh, respected by their fan base. Speaking of Florida head coaches, a former Florida head coach that uh, stepped in under uh, interesting circumstance, trying circumstances, just passed away Galen Hall, and he was a very respected coach. Uh, certainly did a great job while he was the head coach at Florida. A long time, I think, offensive coordinator at Penn State, played at Penn State, uh, just very well respected. I read a uh, number of articles, and I didn't realize uh, just his, uh, uh, you know, how experienced he was in college football and, and the respect that he had uh, in yeah. all the football world. He was a quarterback for Joe Paterno, uh, one of the first uh, in, the, the, in the early tenure of Joe Paterno's career. And, and Galen did a really good job. I coached against him when I was a young coach at LSU. Galen took over for Charlie Pell. So when the program went on probation, Galen took over and really did a good job. But but obviously the probation and the problems that set him back and then that led to the ultimate decision to get Steve Spurrier in from Duke. One of my mentors, Bill Orangeberger, who was a coach that worked sure. for at LSU, left LSU to become the athletic director at Florida and hired uh, – uh, Steve Spurrier and you know but Galen was the coach that he replaced him with but uh, Galen really good coach bright offensive mind no question about it and um, did a lot uh, did a lot for the game of football on the offensive side very good guy another game Florida State Clemson in the ACC well I think that Florida State is you know the, for the first time in a long time um, can line up with Clemson I want to see their their health and their depth come into play. I still think Clemson's deeper, but I think Florida State is really good. I think they're good on both sides of the ball. I think that uh, talking about patience, Mike Norvell and uh, has done a great job of kind of building, you know, what was a mess that Willie Taggart left, and quite frankly, the latter stages of Jimbo Fisher. Uh, he started to, with the transfer portal and recruiting. He started to flip that roster around. Quarterback, good. I um, think the secondary is good. I think the defensive line is good. They, this is a very good team. Now, the key is focus. It's That game is huge. But Clemson has been consistent, and they win all the games they're supposed to win. Florida State can't do something stupid like lose to Wake Forest. Or, you know I mean? just It's those type of games that will kill you. Because when I look at them talent-wise, there's only two teams on their schedule that – that talent-wise could beat them, and that's Clemson and that's LSU. Um, if they're ten and two, that 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 should be that that's good. That that's outstanding. In fact, it's just you know if you go nine and three, who's that third loss to? How does that happen? What does it look like? What you know? So I I think that how they look going into the game against Clemson, even if they were to lose to LSU. Uh, and that game could go either way, by the way. If they could win the rest of their games, go into the Clemson game and, and play well, I, I think that's that's what should be the expectations at Florida State. And look, if they do it, um, they win the ACC, and they've got one loss, and let's say it's, it's only to Clemson or it's only to LSU. They are, as I mentioned earlier, would be the other teams that – would be a contender to, to be one of the four to get into the playoffs along with the Pac-12 schools. I think Clemson and Florida State both fit that category. October 21st, you've got Penn State and Ohio State, then a month later, Michigan at Penn State. 
Is Penn State going to be uh, – they had a decent season last year. Are they going to be better this year? Well, they had a good season and, and outstanding 10-2, and two, but the two that they lost to was those two teams, right. Michigan and Ohio State, and wasn't even close, wasn't even competitive. So I think the, the frustration for that fan base is, you know, yeah, James Franklin is a good recruiter, but big game coach he is not. That's got to change. I think that, let, you know, a couple of years ago was – they have the knucklehead games, like the loss against Illinois in overtime. I mean, that, that can't happen when it didn't happen last year. They won all the games they were supposed to. Now, can they do that again this year? They've got really good running backs. Um, and I think this is a pretty good team. In fact, I think it's the third best team in the Big Ten. But how close are they to Michigan and Ohio State? It appears last year, not very close at all. So let's see if they can win all of those games and then against Michigan and Ohio State, at least be competitive. They go 10-2 and two and at least challenge Michigan and Ohio State in those two games, then I think that's a positive sign. Otherwise, I think, you know, it, it, they're, they're, getting, they're growing restless with James Franklin, particularly when the fact that James Franklin, no one uh, self-promotes better than James Franklin. He has his agent up, push him for every job that comes open to try to create leverage. So the fan base is frustrated with it because they feel like he's not getting it done at the highest level. He's been there long enough. They feel like they should be in the same class as Michigan and Ohio State. And quite frankly, to this point, they're not. You know, I think some fan bases, that tends to rub uh, fan bases the wrong way, where every time there's a potential opening, the agent starts dropping the name. And you hit a point saying, look, if the guy doesn't want to be here, then just go. Yeah, no, I mean, look, that's the, the agents play that game, and, and, you know, I think some do it more than others. I, I can remember that um, going back, I mean, years, he, he's throwing his name out in the USC job, and USC wasn't even considering him. I remember when, um, uh, you know, Scott Woodard was the athletic director at Texas A&M, and he, was, he had been working on poaching Jimbo Fisher away from Florida State. There was only one candidate for that job at A&M. That was Jimbo Fisher. But you heard James Franklin's name the entire time. James was having his agent put that out because he was getting heat at Penn State, and, and that's one thing you can do. You can cause that distraction and say, well, this school likes him, that school likes him. It's not true, but in this world of day and age of marketing, you know, uh, perception is reality is what they say, even when it's not. So, yeah, there's a lot of frustration of, hey, this guy's a you know, bit of a of – a, of a marketer and a self-promoter and not that good of a coach. He's got to change that narrative, and he's got to change it by being consistent, which he did last year, but also challenging the, the big boys. I know several big boosters at Florida State and several board members, and they both, all four of them actually told me that they all got fed up with Jimbo Fisher the last couple of years. Everything Jimbo Fisher wanted, they gave him. They were going to build a practice facility. They were, you know, he wanted improvements in, in other facilities. Everything that, that he wanted, they were serving up to him, and it was never enough. And they finally just said, go, we're, we're fed up. And it was a, a mutual parting of the ways. And Jimbo Fisher hasn't exactly set it on fire at Texas A&M. No, I think the, speaking of guys that need a big year, and um, it's him. Uh, and, and I don't know that he needs to go 10-2, and two, but I think he needs to obviously not go 5-7. and seven. Um, You know, I think a couple of things took place with, with, with Jimbo at A&M. He had that big recruiting class, which was largely NIL-based. 
The problem with that is if players come to your place for money, they're going to be leaving for a dollar more. Right. You, you, you just build a bad culture, and I think he realized that, look, they've got more resources. They've got four more financial resources at A&M than they'd ever have at Florida State. And that's why Florida State's trying to get into the SEC or Big Ten so that they can get more money, and they're trying to work their way out of it. So that's just part of the problem at, at, at Florida State is, you know, they say, well, they gave Jimbo everything. Well, no, they didn't. Florida State doesn't have a fraction of the money that they spent at Clemson or Auburn or Alabama or LSU, yet they expected the results to be just as good. And so that was the problem there, and that's why I went to A&M, a place where they've never won anything, but they have the resources to do it. And so, you know, I think that that the issue for him now is he's got to produce. Yeah, they owe him a ton of money, but I think another five and seven season, and they'll write checks. They'll write the $75 million checks to buy that out. But the problem is, is that A&M, is, they've never had the stability, never been on the same page from a booster standpoint. And who are they going to get that's more proven than Jimbo Fisher? He did right. win a national title there. He is a very good coach. And I don't know that, you know, they can go get a quote-unquote another name guy, but they're not going to get any bigger name than Jimbo Fisher coming from Florida State. So I think they understand that not just that it's a lot of money to buy out, but they feel like he's the right guy, that he need to make changes. The big thing there is he's given up the play calling, which is something he's really not been accustomed to doing. Bobby Petrino, how does Bobby Petrino fit? How does that offense fit? How much better is kind of Wegman be developed well? They could be a surprise team because I think people think, oh, they're five and seven, look, they're going to be six and seven. No, they're probably going to win eight or nine games this year. So the turnaround is going to be good. It's going to be real. And then, of course, the hype is going to be there because the Aggies, after they win nine games this year, are going to be talking about how they're going to, look out, we're getting ready to win the championship in two years. The reality is, is, is they they have never been really consistent or won anything big there. Jimbo's going to have his chance to prove it. Well, the question is, if things get a little difficult, does uh, Jimbo exercise flex power and take away the play calling duties from Petrino? That'll be interesting to watch. Yes. Well, I think I think the answer to that is, if it's successful, then he's going to stick with it. If it's not then you better believe, and, and, and I don't know that I would blame him. If things go haywire, then then he's going to have to take control of it because he's been a play caller, and you know. but everyone's going to be watching that. That's what people are going to be watching. How good is the offense going to be? And if it's not, if it's going good, Dave, everything's fine. I oh, mean, sure. You know, I mean, everything's fine. It's all it's roses. It's just what you said. It's just what you said. It doesn't go well. If it doesn't go well, how is it handled? Because Petrino's not a guy that gets along well with people very well, and and Jimbo would have to jump in, and that could be a mess. But that's only if things don't go well. I have a feeling it's going to go pretty well in College Station this year. Well, Petrino, look, has built some great offenses. He sure has. And along the way, and what was it? Uh, wasn't he most recently the head coach for what was it, Western Kentucky, or where was he before? He went to Texas A&M. He's, he's at Southwest Missouri, and they lined up against, uh, of all places, Arkansas, and they just they just ran all over Arkansas a year ago. So 
he has done it at, you know, he's had to rebuild his career right. after the embarrassing situations. Um, he's, he's one heck of a football coach. Not a great recruiter, but he's in a position at A&M where he's only there to do what he does best. Coach quarterbacks run an offense He's and, and evaluate quarterbacks in recruiting. He's not a recruiter. He's not a head coach. He's not a guy that you want, I think, to be the face of your program. He is a brilliant offensive mind that probably needs to be marginalized. The key there is if he has success, he's going to want another shot at being a head coach, and probably somebody's going to give it to him, maybe even at the SEC level. So I think it's going to work, but long term, I think he's going to want to move on because I don't think he wants to be an offensive coordinator. I think he's using it as a stepping stone to get what he wants going forward, even though I think his best place is just where he is. They could pay him a boatload of money. and right. They could pay him anything they want as, as a coordinator, and he could do what he does best and, quite frankly, stay away from the things that he's not very good. PR, recruiting, those are the things that he needs to be marginalized on. Yeah, they love him in Atlanta, by the way, Chris. I'll tell you, the way he left, classy all the way. I mean, talk about absolutely odd. Just you wonder about some people like, okay, you got an NFL coaching job. You're not happy. You want to go back to the college ranks. Just wait to the end of the season. Do it the right way. But, yeah, he just basically upped and left. And, uh, again, it's how you leave. You burn bridges, and that that is not good for long-term success. All right, lastly, any sleeper teams to watch this year? I think you need to look out for Texas. Uh, I know the whole oh, Texas. I think that's a really good team with a really good quarterback and a really bright head coach. Now, they got Alabama early, so I'm not saying they're going to beat Alabama, but I think they could play them well again, maybe pull the upset, but it's consistency with Texas. It's, it's to me, uh, they've recruited very well. Quite frankly, they flipped the script and is actually recruited better than A&M. In the last couple of seasons, so and I know A and M had the the touted class, but Texas has actually been a little bit more sound. So I think that could be a sleeper. I think Oklahoma's going to rebound and have a good year. Um, you know, I, th- I think that's who you would look at. I, um, in terms of the Big Twelve, uh, we mentioned a couple of them. I think uh, Oregon and Washington, a great rivalry. Two, those two teams are big rivals, by the way. I think both of those teams out west could be a surprise. Um, in terms of like winning the Pac-12, it wouldn't surprise me if they they won the Pac-12. Um, that's kind of how uh, among the surprises. I think I think you know I would say Florida State, but I don't think they'd be a surprise uh, to anyone. Um, I think it's again going to be chalky again, and I don't know that we're going to have a listen. TCU was a great story last year, but I don't see that happening. If you're if you're looking for maybe this year's version of TCU like winning the Big 12, if it's not Texas, I would say Kansas State would be your surprise. Kansas State actually won the Big 12 last year. People forget it was TCU that made the playoffs, and they think they won the Big 12. It was Kansas State that beat them. They could be better this year. Chris Kleiman has done a good job. So if you're looking for the the off-the-radar, who gets in like TCU did last year, I don't think it's going to happen. But I think it would be Kansas State. I don't think they're going to – I think 10-2 is – they're 10-2 surprise. Not, you know, 11 and 1 or 12, and I'll go to the playoff surprise. Well, speaking of Kansas, I'm a big Lance Leipold fan. He did a great job at the oh, University yes. of Buffalo, and that catapulted him, uh, pulled him to get a, you know, a major uh, gig in Kansas. 
he's done a good job in Kansas turning it around. And how about this? They have recently announced they are going all in on football. Yes. The Rock Chalk Jayhawk is not just about the Fog Island Fieldhouse. They are going to redo the stadium and the facilities. So great for them. And, you know, they've got some money coming in. You got to put it into football. You got a great coach. And they're lucky that, you know, um, Luke Fickle was the guy that Wisconsin wanted because the, the second guy on the list was Lance. And I think he would have left for Wisconsin, obviously, at the background with Wisconsin Whitewater. You right. know him for uh, Buffalo. But, you know, you, if you're Kansas, make that job. It's not a destination job. Make it a place that, that Lance wants to stay for a while. Because if you don't, I mean, he is going to be a, you know, a shortlist candidate for bigger time jobs. So I, I think it's great that they're going to put money into the football program. Um, I know it's a basketball school, but you better put money into your football program because even at the basketball schools, uh, you could fill out all those basketball arenas all you want. Um, it, it, it's, it's a pittance compared to what you get in the football and what you make football, TV-wise and gate-wise. Now, Kansas had some exciting games last season. When he was at Buffalo, I was rooting for him to, to uh, for Syracuse to offer him yes. the head coach job because I just thought he was a great recruiter, great PR, great with the community, winning background everywhere he's been, and kind of guy you want in your program, great stability. And speaking of my Syracuse Orange men, I think this could be the end of the line for Dino Babers. They signed him to an extension, I don't know, what was it, four years ago after he had one big season and Syracuse is a private school. They don't have the big alumni money of an Alabama or a Florida or a Texas A&M. And this year, I think after this season, they can afford to buy him out. Uh, or his contract may be done. I'm not sure. But there's a program under the great, uh, um, you know, under great, we had some great head coaches. And it just has fallen by the wayside. And it's been really a 20-year decline. I'm not very optimistic with Dino Babers. Well, I'm not either, and I know people got excited in that one year, and that's just, and it's, it's kind of like it reminds you what happened at Michigan State with Mel Tucker. You know, I had one good year, and it was fool's goal, and, and again, speaking of leverage, you know, it kind of leveraged it into a big multi, multi-million dollar contract because he put it out there that he was a candidate at LSU, and he wasn't. At least they don't have the big buyout at Syracuse. The concern is that program's lost a lot of their identity. We just discussed earlier, Northeast program, Syracuse, and the Big East, Big East football makes sense. Playing West Virginia, you know, Penn State, you can be competitive, go to bowl games. I just, they've lost an identity in the ACC. There's no real, there's no, like matchups that excite you there. Nope. It, it just, it just, it's, so it's a hard sell for them. I mean, they, they say, well, we're going to be in the ACC and we're going to be able to recruit the, the Atlantic coast. No, you're not. You're not going to have those kids are not going to go there. And you know, good players in Jersey, you're not getting them. You know, I mean, if Penn state's not getting them, it's some other school in the big 10 is getting them. I mean, you're not getting them. So it's, it's a big issue. Um, I, I think an identity crisis issue with them and, you know, it's a finance issue. And, you know, is, is right now the, the Florida State's been the most vocal, but with, I have no doubt that Florida State and Clemson, if they could get out, if they could 
Oh, they'd be out in a they second. Could get, they get out in a second, no question. And then where does that leave? It kind of leaves the Syracuse football program in even worse shape. But, you know, to me, if you're Syracuse and you, you are one of the great Syracuse alums, you know, I think that, you know, I don't want to speak for you, but I think if you could do and find your coach that's um, – you know, uh, a, a Dave Clawson type of guy that, that you know, just that does it at Wake Forest that, you know, if Syracuse can be consistently good, like win, you know, you just got to get a schedule right, but you can win eight games and go to bowl games. That's the ceiling there. You're not in a difficult schedule. You're not going to win 10 or 11 games unless it's a unusual year. Consistently, you're not going to be able to do it. But I'm with you. I don't – I'm a little disappointed that Dino's not been able to – Look, he's, you're not going to recruit very well at Syracuse anymore. What you have to do is recruit the right type of guy, and you have to be good at developing. And that's not Dino's strength. So my advice is is when they make that move, <clears throat> get a guy that's a developmental coach. And I think Syracuse needs a developmental program. Get the guy that wants an opportunity that's going to you know, not be the guy that's going to be looking to leave in two or three years because he can't. He needs to be developed. If you look at the, you know, the Wake Forest, the Dukes, that's what, you know, they need to find their Mike Elkhold, their Dave right. Clawson type of guy. And I don't think Dino's that guy. Well, Syracuse has invested in uh, new football facilities. The Dome is <coughs> is totally yeah. renovated. So they've invested money in the facilities. And you look back when they brought in Dick McPherson, 1981, he turned the program around. But it took him about five years to turn the program around. But when he did... They were sailing, and then Paul Pasqualoni was his, uh, I think, the linebackers coach or defensive yes. coordinator, and and Pasqualoni was there 14 years, and he got the shaft in terms. Look, he had a couple of bad years of recruiting or lean years. They weren't bad. A couple of lean years, and then they bring in Greg Robinson, who had no business being a head coach, let alone right. in the Northeast. And then it's just been one coach after the other. But what they need is somebody that understands Northeast football. There are players in New York in Pennsylvania, in New Jersey, and then you supplement it with guys from Florida and other parts of the country, which they did under Pasqualoni. But it's just been uh, it's been a steady state of decline, unfortunately. And Dino Babers had a nice record, but as I've learned as doing some research, he always came into other teams and won with other coaches' recruits, never well, with yeah. his own. And That's it's a different a, story. No question about it. And I've got a fondness for the program, and I remember the history, but – so when I was a young um, prospect coming out, and back in the day before you you didn't have the huddle videos and everything, I actually got recruited by Syracuse and Coach McPherson. And out to my surprise, my first thought I was I thought a pretty good evaluator, even as a high school player. I said something's wrong because I didn't know why they were recruiting me. And then I realized because I had had a high interception ratio, I, I played defensive back. And I figured they obviously haven't watched any film on me. So once they did, they, they stopped recruiting me. But <laughs> I had I had a relationship with them. And then I actually, um, while I was at LSU, Paul took over for Dick, as you mentioned, and almost went to Syracuse as, really? uh, as Paul's recruiting coordinator and an assistant coach. Um, and then I actually, it was it, it was a it was an issue. I was going to go to Syracuse, and then then I, I ended up almost going to Michigan as there. So here I am with a Michigan guy and a Syracuse guy doing this show and almost went to Michigan and ended up staying at LSU one more year before I 
went uh, to Belichick's staff in Cleveland. But I've got a fondness for Syracuse. And, and, and the history, though, is when they were independents. Right. And they, they, could, they could pick their schedule. And, and when they were independents, they played that Northeast schedule, and it mattered. And, and now I just don't think it just they, – again, they've lost their identity, and I think it's hurt their recruiting, which is why they need to, they need to have their developmental guide. Look at – I think just in a short time, Mike Elko's done at Duke. I've mentioned Clawson. Those those are two models that I think Syracuse needs to look at. Um, and, you know, Wake and Duke or, or, or ACC-type schools, Syracuse is not. So you're right. They're not going to go out and get the best players in the Northeast. But they can get good players that maybe are that three-star guy that they can develop and, and, uh, and, and to me, have good teams. And you're going to have to schedule well, which means – you know, schedule some games that you can win in the, the pre-conference schedule because playing in a conference where everybody's got a better identity and they got a better program is difficult. Whereas when you were an independent, you could kind of, you could, you know, spread out your schedule where you can, you know, you get the three or four tough games a year and you can spread them out. And before you know it, you end up with a 7-4 and four type record and have good seasons. That's, that's very difficult, more difficult to do now at Syracuse than it used to be in the old days. Coach Dick McPherson reminded me of Coach Bobby Bowden because they were both very approachable, both very personable. They sold the program. They were great in the communities. They spoke everywhere. I mean, I remember seeing Coach Mack on campus uh, going to the Varsity, which is a big pizza place and other restaurants that you'd see him. Very approachable. Students would come up to him, and he really enjoyed being in that environment. And uh, those two coaches really remind They both had tremendous class People love them, and uh, I think Dick McPherson would have been at Syracuse. If he didn't leave for the NFL going to the Patriots, I think he would have been at Syracuse for another 15, 20 years coaching very successfully, and he brought in great assistants. Well, he did a, he did a great job. Um, I got to know him a little bit uh, after the fact. We joked about it because after what I just talked about, and he didn't know me. It was just a letter recruiting, but – but we ended up, when I was a young coach at LSU, we played Syracuse in the Hall of Fame Bowl. And I remember took, that. I was at they, that game in Tampa. Yeah, they took it to us. And we had a great time get to know him and, and uh, loved, the, loved the way he kind of, you know, ran his team and program. He was a great guy. I still remember he used to wear that uh, blue blazer. That's and right. And lining in it was orange, Syracuse orange. So, yeah, he was, uh, he was a really, really good guy. I enjoyed getting to know him. Yeah, it was made by a company called Learberry in Syracuse. <laughs> and I think the orange lining was, I want to say it was like Sugar Ray Leonard, or it came from like one of the uh, the robes they would come in when they would, you know, before oh, wow. the boxing match. There was a story behind that. Always wore the tie, you know, always had that, uh, the, the, the blue blazer, just a class guy all the way. And, and uh, I think football misses those kind of guys, the Dick yes. McPhersons, the Bobby Bowdens. They really were, they enjoyed being around the college program. They enjoyed the students. They were approachable. They were personable. Uh, you're, I kind of, I think college football misses that to a degree today. Well, I think, I think we do. But, you know, isn't that just a reflection of society? I mean, like back then, you know, you were more integrated in your program and, and you, people treat others with more respect unfortunately today you know it's like i can remember bear bryant was that way i mean he'd go to places and it was very approachable can you imagine being an approachable as a head coach today with, with the with the social media and the, the way things work now you can't go anywhere as a head coach at a major program today without you know police protection i mean people could do all sorts of things and do i mean it's just it's unfortunately a reflection of society that 
people are not as nice today and and so therefore you can't really it's hard to be as open um and i think it's i think there's some coaches that still would like to do that today and uh, but but the, it's just a different world and, and i agree with you it was well, I don't know. I'm a get. Off, I don't want to be the get off my lawn guy, but I thought it was better back then. Where yeah, you no, became, I'm with you. And you know that was part green. of college football that they were yes. approachable, that they were on campus, that you could interact with them. And and I remember that in my dorm there were no separate athletic facility dorms. We had guys from the Syracuse basket program, basketball program, from the football program. We all went to the dining you know halls together. It wasn't as uh, as separated as it is today. No, there's no question. It's. It's completely changed, and it's going to even be a greater separation with, you know, there, there's there's really no you know, loyalty to, you know, players are going to do their thing. They're going to be able to transfer, and it, with NIL, players can get more money, and, you know, all of that, um, you know, it, it, you, you become detached as not a student athlete. We got a young young uh, girl from uh, upstate New York that, uh, actually, I don't know if she's from upstate, she's from New York that's a gymnast at LSU, um, uh, Libby Dunn, Olivia Dunn, she's like the second behind uh, Deion Sanders' uh, boy, uh, is the second highest NIL earner. She's a beautiful young gymnast, and she does this modeling and all that. She's made like $3 million this past year just on that. It's As athletes begin to make more money, it becomes more of a business, um, again, you're going to see greater separation. It's going to be more business, more sterile, more... more um, you know, more detached. So yeah, it's maybe it's a different world. We have to adjust to it, but yep. yeah, I don't think it's as good as it used to be. Time change. All right, let's wrap it up with your prediction for who will be in the college football national championship game on Monday, January 8th, 2024 at NRG stadium in Houston. I think Georgia by the, the mere fact that they are likely to go 12 and 0 their schedule. I don't see anybody beating them on their schedule. So even if they were to lose to Alabama or LSU in the SEC championship game, I think they get in. I think it's very likely we could see a second SEC team be that LSU or Alabama. Uh, and then I do think that both Ohio State and Michigan have great chances. Now, I like, I still like Michigan's physicality in that matchup against the Buckeyes, but I think that the Buckeyes have the best receiver room in the country. I think they're really good. Can they become a little bit more um, well-rounded and get in? I don't know that we're going to have two SEC and two Big Ten, but I do think, as I mentioned at the at the top of the um, the, 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 the segment, that I, I think that they are their playoff caliber. I, so I think that there's a good chance – that of those four, at least three of them make it. And then, you know, I do think that there's the outlier. It, it could be the Clemson, Florida State, or, or USC. Uh, I think it's likely going to have one of those teams be in the mix. But I think the chalk is the chalk. I think uh, we don't uh, – last year was an anomaly with the TCU getting in. Uh, the teams that I mentioned are going to be the teams that are going to be in. I would throw in maybe an Oregon, Washington as a Pac-12 candidate, but uh, you can take the hand or let's say two handfuls of teams, and you don't need to go further than that to find your four. All right, so you think Georgia's going to win it all? I don't know that I'm ready to say Georgia's going to win it all yet. I need to see Carson Beck develop. I think that they've got a really good chance. I think they're the surest bet to make the playoffs. I don't know that I would make them the favorite. I want to see if, you know, because I thought that they got good quarterback play at the end of last year. 
<clears throat> and if that is slips a little bit, then I don't know. I'd, uh, maybe a Michigan or Ohio State could get them. Look, Ohio State just came a whisker away from beating them. We forget that. And it wasn't like they dominated Ohio State. Ohio State was right there with Georgia and could have easily won. I would probably give maybe Ohio State or Michigan, uh, uh, in particularly Ohio State, making the playoffs maybe a better chance of winning it this year over a, a, the likes of a Georgia. Chris, how do uh, our uh, listeners uh, find all your information and get all your great prognostications and film breakdown throughout the year? LandryFootball.com is uh, where you can go and find it all. You can find all our podcasts. Uh, you can, uh, we advise folks to check out um, the Landry Football Podcast Network on Apple and Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, the Landry Football Podcast Network. And LandryFootball.com is our housing center for all of it, all the breakdowns, the college game, the NFL games. If we like to say if it involves players, teams, coaches, or schemes on the college or NFL level, we give you a coaching, scouting, front office perspective. So check it out today. If you like football, you're going to love LandryFootball.com and the Landry Football Podcast Network. So we look forward to visiting with all the great folks, the football fans out there all throughout the season. Chris, do you still have your 28 uh, TVs in the Landry Cave? <laughs> well, it's only six, but I do have them, and uh, they're fired up uh, during the during the football season. And you know, the, the switch, it's been different as uh, DirecTV since 1994 had the NFL Sunday ticket package. So, you know, uh, changes, I'm not good with change, so uh, our friend Steve will tell you that. So I, um, <laughs> I had to switch from DirecTV to YouTube, and I started that in February. But I think I'm good. I think I'm in a good place understanding uh, the, uh, the pros and cons of streaming. So I'm ready to go, man, with the, all the TVs fired up. Well, speaking from personal experience, I cut the cable cord last November. I got rid of the, I don't know, I think I had a dozen cable boxes in my house, went to YouTube TV. Absolutely fantastic. It, you can, if you're traveling, you can use it. You don't have to worry about all those boxes. The cost is way less. And this year, and we're going to talk next week with our NFL preview, uh, Chris, but the Sunday ticket is now going to be streamed exclusively on YouTube TV, and it's going to be a much better experience than the Direct TV Sunday ticket. So I'm very excited about that. Yeah, I am as well. So it's uh, sometimes change is hard, but we got to embrace it. So embracing, I am. Yeah, and a lot of football games are broadcast in 4K. And if you get the, for I think 10 bucks a month extra, you can get the 4K, which I got. And I'll tell you, it's great watching, watching football in 4K. Really enhances the experience. So we start. Actually, uh, this afternoon, by the time this airs, uh, we drop this uh, and all the podcast providers. The game between Navy and Notre Dame kicks off 2.30 Eastern time from Ireland. So the college football season is underway. Chris, as always, we thank you for uh, your expert analysis and insight on the college football upcoming season. Next week, you'll be joining us again for our NFL preview. So we're excited about that. Hey, looking forward to it. Fantastic. Chris Landry of LandryFootball.com. Check out the site. Cannot go wrong. That wraps it up for this edition of the Cigar Dave Show. I've got to go watch college football now. Cigar Dave, the general, saying, May your humidor always be full. May your cutter always be sharp. May your ash be extra, extra long. Semper Delictatio. Always pleasure. Long live the alpha. Make masculinity great again. Screw the enemies of pleasure. Screw the Marxists. Hashtag Save America. <laughs>